Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. Schools have been disrupted by the coronavirus. Now come budget cuts. In a moment, I'll talk with the head of the Ohio Education Association. Also facing challenges, the foster care system. I'll have a segment about that in about 20 minutes with somebody from SAFI. That's an agency based in Columbus that serves Ohio and several other states. In the second half hour, courtesy of 10TV, Scott Light has a number of guests to talk about the coronavirus and its impact, including Columbus Mayor Andy Genther, State Representative Kristen Boggs of Columbus, as well as a couple of political analysts. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with someone from AARP, the AARP Foundation, about older workers and the issues they're facing in these economic difficulties. First up on Columbus Perspective, joining me on the phone, Scott DeMauro, who is the president of the Ohio Education Association. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us first about the Ohio Education Association. So the Ohio Education Association is uh, over 120,000 educators from across the state. Uh, We are uh, the largest education advocacy organization and the largest labor union in the state. Uh, we represent uh, teachers, uh, pre-K through college. We represent education support professionals, people that work as uh, bus drivers and cafeteria workers and school secretaries and a whole host of other uh, people, all dedicated to supporting students and quality public education. And you by trade, I guess you're a, a social studies teacher in Worthington, right? I am. I, uh, I've been uh, a social studies teacher in Worthington at Worthington Kilburn High School. Uh, since 1996. Uh, For the last seven years, I have been out of the classroom serving as a first uh, vice president of the OEA, and and for the last year, I've been the president. What has the last few weeks been like for OEA members and schools in general? I I would say the the first word that comes to my mind is stressful. Um, you know, our, our members across the state uh, have been under enormous pressure to uh, make sure that they're uh, keeping students engaged in learning, even though they can't be with them in person. Uh, we all know that there's no substitute for the kind of support that you can give uh, to students in school. Um, but uh, they're working really hard, and, and the feedback that we're getting is that uh, our members are doing a tremendous job. This happens to be Teacher Appreciation Week. And, uh, you know, we we just saw a survey recently of parents that said that 88% of parents uh, approve or strongly approve of the work that their uh, child's teacher is doing uh, and supporting their learning. And uh, despite really difficult circumstances, uh, our members have really stepped up to the plate and doing a fantastic job. Teachers, it seems to me, arguably would have had the most difficult path to completely redo their you know the structure of their day and and doing their job yeah it's been it's been tough and it's it's especially been tough because you know if you recall uh the governor uh announced the order that schools were were going to be closing on march 12th and that order took effect at the end of the day uh just two school days later on march 16th and so there was virtually no time uh to really put together a remote a robust uh, remote learning plan. Uh, And so, you know, all across the state, uh, there's been a lot of uh, kind of building it as as we go to figure out the best way to keep students engaged. And what's made it really, really hard is that there is just such a a de 
deep level of inequity when it comes to the level of access that students have uh, to internet, uh, to technology devices, uh, and to support at home in order to make this successful. So, you know, we have some places where, you know, they've been able to kind of adapt and, and go to an online setting and and uh, hardly skip a beat. And, and in other cases, you know, our, our members are spending a lot of their time just just checking up on the on the wellness and safety and well-being of, of students, you know, trying to make sure that, that we, you know, keep track of where they are and, and making sure that they're okay. Assuming that some degree of normalcy returns next school year, are there takeaways from all of this that have changed education permanently in the future? I, I definitely think there are. And, and again, the, the first one is a recognition that, you can't uh, simply, uh, you know, move to an online learning system or to a remote learning system and, and think that you're going to have all the same kind of support that you're going to have, you know, with with face-to-face connections with students in schools. Uh, so I don't think that, that anybody's come away from this saying that, oh, all of a sudden, we you know, we just don't need, uh, you know, brick-and-mortar schools and classrooms anymore. Uh, but there are some things that, that I think have been useful. One, one thing is that we know that, um, there can be some some effective online learning platforms if you ensure that there is full access uh, for both educators and students to those platforms. Uh, but one thing also that we've learned is that we really have to invest some time uh, into training and quality professional development uh, so that teachers and, for that matter, students and parents, um, you know, are well equipped to be able to use that and use that successfully. Talking with Scott DeMauro, president of the OEA, the Ohio Education Association. Well, the governor the other day announced $355 million in cuts K through 12. What does that mean? It was uh, really sad. I mean, we know that uh, given the uh, economic situation with this pandemic uh, and the devastating hit that it's taking on our economy, uh, we know that the state is facing really, really difficult uh, budget choices. But we were very disappointed to see that there was such a uh, large hit on funding for local school districts. I'll point out that that $355 million is just for the last two months of the current budget cycle. So that's a, a hit that is being felt immediately uh, for the months of May and June. And we don't know yet what to expect as far as uh, funding cuts or adjustments for next year's budget. Uh, what I can tell you is, uh, number one, we are doing all we can to advocate with the federal government uh, to provide much-needed relief for states and local school districts uh, to fill in some of those gaps that the state's not able, able to fill right now. And we're also encouraging the governor and, and legislative leaders to use the Rainy Day Fund um, I know that, that he's trying to save that for, for uh, next year's budget, but, you know, it's, it's raining really hard right now. And at a time when the needs are more evident than they've ever been before, uh, it's very unfortunate to see, you know, funding cuts just to exacerbate those inequalities and exacerbate, um, you know, the, the really unfortunate situation that too many of our students find themselves in. So there are school districts, uh, individual districts, looking at several million dollars in cuts immediately. How do they offset that? What do they do? Well, 
you know, you hope that in, in some cases they have enough of uh, cash balance uh, and are fairly solid uh, for at least the next few years that they can absorb uh, that hit. We also know that there are already some uh, funds that are coming from the federal government through the CARES Act. Uh, those dollars aren't yet flowing. The sooner they start flowing to districts, the better. Um, there are some strings attached to those dollars, and they're not being allocated quite in the same way that the, that the state uh, funding formula works. Uh, but that'll provide relief to some districts. Um, but no, it, it means that a lot of districts are being faced with really difficult choices because they don't have the resources that they need to meet the needs of all students. And so, um, yeah, it, it's going to play out differently in every, every school district. I know that our local unions uh, are going to be very heavily engaged in, in advocating for their students uh, and negotiating and collaborating with their uh, superintendents and their school boards uh, to try to navigate this storm as best we can. It seems to me that there's a, a huge issue coming down the road, and, and uh, I'm going to mention Lancaster because the mayor was on a conference call with reporters the other day, and the topic was brought up about the income tax credit that Lancaster and most of the suburbs around Columbus, in fact, maybe all of them do, provide to folks who live in a suburb and work in Columbus. They pay 2.5% income tax to Columbus, and most of the, the income tax to their local town that they live in is credited. But Lancaster has already been bringing up in meetings, taking that away. So if you live in Lancaster and work in Columbus, you're already paying Columbus taxes. And if you make 50000 a year, and all of a sudden you've got to pay 1% to Lancaster, that's 500 bucks out of your pocket. And then if the local schools need a levy passed, that's, that could be hundreds more. There's going to be a real crunch coming down the road here. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, the income tax uh, revenue generally is, is something for municipalities, although we have school districts that have income taxes um, as a revenue stream for them, and they're, they're being disproportionately affected you know, immediately with, with loss of revenues here. Um, yeah, there, there certainly are a lot of, uh, a lot of squeezes that are happening. And that's why we think it's so important, uh, for the federal government, uh, you know, Congress is, is really in a unique position because they do have the ability, uh, to provide additional relief. And we're calling on, uh, Congress to provide $175 billion uh, in relief dedicated to support for public education as part of the overall $500 billion relief package for states and, and local communities. And I think that that will hopefully give cities like Lancaster uh, a little bit of cushion so that um, they're not passing on you know their budget difficulties to their residents. Yeah, it just seems like there's so many different areas with police and fire, roads. There's so many areas that are experiencing revenue shortages now. And at some point, it seems like there's going to be a clash of all of this stuff coming together that can't help schools, you know, in the event that they need funding down the road. Yeah, and, and I'll just uh, point out that, you know, with all the talk of, and, and I think everybody uh, is eager to, to get back to normal in some way and there's still lots of questions you know about uh when it's going to be safe to do that and of course we're all you know following the guidance of the department of health and 
uh, in determining, you know, our priority in all of this, our number one priority has to be uh, health and safety of students, of school employees, and of the people in our community. Um, but as we go, as we think about reopening the economy, and as that means parents who have been working from home going back to, you know, working in a uh, in an office setting or working in their businesses, um, there have to be safe schools in order for their children to go back to. And so if, if there isn't a priority in making sure that schools have the resources they need, then that's going to uh, cause harm for everybody else and for other sectors of the economy. And so I hope that our leaders will be thinking about that as, as we think about budget priorities, because, you know, it is absolutely essential uh, that we provide for the needs of our students, because that means supporting our families, uh, not to mention the fact that this is what our future is all about. You know, we, we can't afford uh, to lose, you know, all this time to, you know, for learning for, for our kids. Talking with Scott DeMauro, he's the president of the Ohio Education Association. Do you have any sense of what's going to happen in the fall with a new school year, whether it will start out normally or uh, what kind of uh, plans are being made and and contingencies? Yeah, so uh, on behalf of the Ohio Education Association, I have been uh, invited to participate in a uh, what they're calling a co-design uh, group for uh, reset and recovery. Uh, it's the terminology that the State Department of Education is using as as uh, they're doing planning for transition back to whatever uh, the next school year is going to look like. And superintendents and and uh, principals and counselors and nurses and and uh, education support professionals, a whole variety of, of stakeholders are, are involved in that process with the Department of Health, the Department of Education, and, and representatives of the governor's office. And I expect that there's gonna be some, some guidance you know, coming out within the next couple of weeks uh, to really help school districts in their thinking and their planning for that. Um, an overall approach that's, that's being taken in, in those conversations is, number one, we know that the state has to be very, very clear in setting what are the standards for health and safety for our schools. Uh, so if social distancing is going to continue to be required, we need to know you know, what are the minimum standards for that? Uh, what are the minimum standards for PPE? What are the minimum standards for disinfecting, uh, you know, spaces that, that people are in? You know, what are the standards as far as, like, how many people can be in a room at, at one time? And then it's going to be up to local school districts to figure out, uh, do they have the capacity to open uh, given those those standards? Um, there is still lots of uncertainty because, you know, we don't know how long this, this virus is going to be around, but the working assumption right now is that coronavirus is going to be with us for a while uh, until we have a vaccination or we have a cure. And so, you know, there's a lot of contingency planning that's happening and way more questions than answers at this point. If it was a business, you could think about adding another shift, but that, that just doesn't seem practical to have, you know, a, a six-hour session for half the school and a six-hour session for the other half. Would that even work? Yeah, there, there's been talk of that, and I, I think we've seen in, in some other countries that have been adapting their education 
systems to doing some kind of shift. In fact, the governor suggested the other day, you know, one possibility was you would have half the students, you know, in school for two days a week and the other half in school for the other two days a week. And then the fifth day would be time for uh, disinfecting the school and, and for teachers to, to do planning. And then in the meantime, you would have some kind of remote learning. Um, there are all kinds of options on the table. The thing, back to your point, though, about uh, that it's not as simple as a business adding a shift, um, that requires personnel. You know, you have right. to have enough teachers and you have to have enough uh, support staff in order to make that work. And especially if we're facing budget cuts, uh, it seems unlikely that schools are going to be able to add staff. Uh, so um, how, do we, how do we function with the staff that we have? And, and we're frankly fighting to avoid staff layoffs and staff cuts. So um, it's definitely difficult. I, I personally believe that unless we're confident that it's going to be safe to reopen schools, we shouldn't reopen schools. Scott DeMauro joining us. He's the president of the Ohio Education Association. Anything else you'd like to add, Scott? Again, as, uh, as we you know, conclude this Teacher Appreciation Week, uh, first I want to say thank you, Dave, for the opportunity to, to talk with you today and, and to talk with your listeners. Uh, but I just want to express how much I am uh, just in awe of the work that our members are doing. Um, I hear every day... Uh, that, that teachers are stressed, but they're, they're trying really hard. Uh, and more than anything else, they miss their kids. They miss the, the connection that they have with students. And I see, you know, evidence all over the place of how much kids miss their teachers. And I'll just share one quick anecdote. Uh, a friend of mine is a fifth grade teacher in Bexley. Uh, he happens to live in Dublin. It was his birthday a few weeks ago, and the parents of his students organized a caravan uh, where they all paraded past his house and held up signs to wish him a happy birthday, maintaining social distancing. Uh, but it just shows that, that those kinds of personal connections uh, between educators and students are so powerful, and they're especially important during this time of stress. And so I just, for any of our members and any educators that are listening, I just I just want you all to know how deeply appreciative and thankful I am for the work that you do every day for our students. It's excellent. You get a kid who runs into a great teacher and it changes their life forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I bet you, we can both think about the teachers that made such a difference in our lives uh, and it continues to happen every day. Scott DeMauro, again, President OEA. Uh, thanks so much for your time today, Scott. Good luck to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone, we've talked to her before. It is Dr. Sharice Penn, who is the Why Thrive Director and a foster parent recruiter for SAFI, which stands for Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth here in Columbus. How are you? Good morning. I am well. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, Tell us what SAFI is. SAFI is a foster parent agency uh, throughout the United States. We actually have, we're actually in seven states with 29 divisions. We are headquartered here out of Ohio, and we actually have eight offices in Ohio. And again, we are a foster parent agency. We recruit foster parents. We support older youth services. We also have adoption services. Okay, and do you receive uh, government funding, or how do you work? We do. We do receive funding. Uh, We have private donations from our communities. We also have funding from the United States government. We also, of course, take advantage of of the Medicaid program that's available. Okay, and uh, in a nutshell, can you give us uh, just some figures or some information about foster care in Ohio? Yes, Foster care in the state of Ohio continues to tick up. We have over 16,600 children in foster care as we speak with only 7,800 homes. So we've seen a slight uptick in homes, but 7,800 homes just isn't enough for the over 16,000 kids in care in this state. So we really, really need foster care homes and especially in light of the COVID-19 epidemic. This is National Foster Care Month, and uh, I understand that the coronavirus and and all the fallout really has hit the foster care world pretty hard, right? Absolutely. The COVID-19 has absolutely turned the child welfare system upside down. Um, We definitely have seen the number of referrals increase. A lot of that is because of homelessness, unemployment, increased domestic violence in homes. The children are at home more than ever, so you don't have teachers able to assess the children in the classroom to see if they do need that help, if they're being abused or neglected. So there's a lot of things happening to our youth and our children right now. And you could also have a situation where somebody has just become a foster parent and then lost their job, and then they're they're just like, what do I do now? Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of people are, you know, um, being furloughed, or they are, again, being laid off, or they're deciding not to work because of the coronavirus to protect their own children. So we are definitely trying to support our foster parents to the best of our ability. We've provided care packages for our foster parents. We've provided masks for our foster parents, hand hand sanitizer to our foster parents, even food um, and gift cards in some situations to them, along with being able to have a resource toolkit available to them so that could help them connect with different community agencies in regards to employment and helping them with their utility bills and helping with transportation or even helping them with mental health services and um, homeschooling materials. So how is this changing positions such as yours, a foster parent recruiter or, you know, case managers uh, checking in on kids and families to make sure 
everything's going all right. How are you doing it in this social distancing world? First, I'd like to say a big thank you to all the essential employees, to every child welfare worker and to every social worker and all of those that support them. Everyone is doing a wonderful job as we try to adapt and be resilient in these times. So what we're doing at SAFI, we've moved to online training. We offer online foster parent pre-service training through two platforms. One is called GoToMeeting and the other is Skype. It really is working out really, really well. Our prospective foster families find it very easy to be able to log on to the system and get support from our instructors via online. They do have assessments that they have to do, we provide everything that they need in advance to be successful. So it's really working really well for us, as well as doing online information sessions and online one-on-one meetings to meet with foster parents to, you know, inform them of the responsibilities of becoming a foster parent and the five-step licensure process. And what about kids themselves? Uh, you know, their their world is already pretty chaotic as they Uh, sometimes move from home to home, and now this is going on. Uh, What is their well-being like in in their lives? These children, I I really, really want to stress, these children are so strong. They are very strong children. They are adapting fairly well because of the help of the social workers and the child welfare workers and, of course, the foster parents. However, we are helping to supplement them and aid them by having... um, a coloring contest. That's one of the things we did. It was in this together Ohio coloring contest where all the children were able to participate in that. That was a great uh, turnout. We've also had online support groups for our foster parents. We have uh, had reading time with the children, which has been wonderful to do those reading times where they can learn about different authors and different subjects, and that's really been a great, great support. Also for our high school graduates, Sassy provided a $100 gift card to every high school graduate, and that's so helpful to those high school graduates during this time. We have not forgotten them. We're thinking about them. We care about them, and they deserve to be celebrated for all their hard work. So there are a number of different things that we're doing like that to help support them. We also had... um Instagram live events, we had a Get Real with Gabby Hart. Gabby is originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and she's a news reporter out in Las Vegas, and she spoke to our teenage girls who are in foster care about resiliency and overcoming obstacles and, you know, keeping your head up and not giving up or giving in. So that was really, really powerful, and we have an upcoming foster um IG live event for our teen boys, and it's about the playbook. It's about goal setting and staying focused and how to apply that in your everyday life. So we are tapping into social media and being able to help our families and our youth. Talking with Sharice Penn, she is uh, the Wife Thrive Director and Foster Parent Recruiter for SAFI in Columbus, that's Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth. You mentioned uh, at the beginning about 16,000 kids being in the foster care system in Ohio and not enough homes to go around. It would seem like that's going to grow because, you know, when the economy takes a, a dive like this, if you've got families that are barely holding on or perhaps have substance abuse issues, things like that, that might be exacerbated and we may have uh, a growing problem. Do you see that? as a possibility? 
Absolutely. So we know we are going to see an uptick um, in foster care referrals because parents are really having to choose between their home life and their children and their jobs. So you have parents who don't have sick days, don't have child care, or don't have medical insurance, and they're literally being forced to choose between going to work and taking care of their kids. So like you said, the number of referrals are going to tick up. For the month of March, in the state of Ohio, there were 400 referrals. That's a significant increase. A hundred of those referrals were for our Columbus division that we experienced at SAFI. Also, the month of April, there were 460 referrals, 365 statewide and 95 in Columbus. And so we know that that uptick is coming for the month of May. That's why it's so important for individuals who are interested in possibly becoming a foster parent or a respite parent or an emergency care home that they visit our website at www.safi.org backslash Ohio to learn more about SAFI and the foster parent licensure process because they're really going to need your help. We're going to need your help as an agency, as a city, and as a state. So I implore everybody, please, please consider becoming a foster family. Okay, and uh, we have just a moment or two to go here. What is the Why Thrive uh, program? What is that? The Why Thrive program is a youth initiative program. It's for youth the ages 12 to 18 years old, and we want to expose, equip, and empower youth to thrive in life. We are here to help foster youth prepare for life in regards to job readiness, work placement, and really just their independent living skills and increasing those so they can go out and be productive citizens in this great country, in this great state. Okay, Sharice Penn again with SAFI, Specialized Alternatives for Families and Youth headquartered here in Columbus and overseeing several states. If folks want more information about foster care, getting involved in it, or if they want to help out the agency, how do they do that? They can uh, call 614-729-2024, or they can visit us at www.safy.org. Great. Sharice, thanks so much for your time, and uh, I wish uh, wish you well and hope things uh, go well for these kids. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate you so much. Shortness of breath, patients confused, temp 102. He just had an infection. What's going on? It's becoming septic. Antibiotics started. Bed ready, let's move him. Infections can lead to a deadly chain reaction in your body called sepsis. Very quickly, sepsis can cause tissue damage, organ failure, and even death. If you know the risks, can spot the symptoms and act fast, then you can get ahead of sepsis. Learn more at cdc.gov sepsis. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of 10TV, here is Scott Light from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Here's Scott. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Face the State on another Sunday morning. It was another momentous week in Ohio as a plan was announced 
to reopen the economy, and that plan took some heat from multiple sides, too. You're going to hear from Governor DeWine, Lieutenant Governor Houston this morning, plus Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther. Also, I speak with Ohio Representative Kristen Boggs as Democrats have their own ideas for reopening. And then I talk with senior members of the Capitol Press Corps about when other parts of the state could open. We're talking major parts like college campus life, plus restaurants and bars. Then a little bit later, my interviews with two veterans in Democratic and Republican politics. We're going to break down some new polling showing Governor DeWine dominating President Trump when it comes to handling a pandemic. Plus, new numbers on the Joe Biden-Donald Trump matchup right here in Ohio. Here's a hint. Ohio may be a battleground still. But let's begin with the DeWine administration that announced three dates in May to open up Ohio's economy, beginning with hospitals so routine surgeries can come back online, then manufacturing and distribution, and then May 12th, retail can reopen. Perhaps the most controversial part of the week involved face coverings. The governor said masks had to be worn by both employers and their customers. The administration walked that back and tried to clarify their position. Lieutenant Governor Houston... As best as you can try to get advice from everybody, there's always going to be an exception. And when we put the business group together, they there were 20 of them, and they were unanimous in saying that face covering should be required for customers and for employees. But we also learned, as soon as that was announced, that there were a lot of other circumstances where a customer or a business found those policies impractical. And so we have worked to clarify the, as best we can on how you should implement this as a business and, a, and as a customer. And let me start with this. Number one, first of all, for Ohioans, when you are a customer in an Ohio business, you should wear a face covering. You should do that. But you are not required to wear a face covering. When I see you wearing this, I know you're not just, you're really not doing this for you. You're doing it for me. You might be doing it for my child who's immunocompromised. You might be doing it for my parent. And every time I see someone doing this, that's what I see. I see that sort of nod, that high five to each other about what we are doing collectively. And it will take all of us doing this together. I see a culture change happening I see people taking sort of what are some hard and difficult things and joining together in a, in a solidarity. This is a team sport, Ohio. This is all of us collectively. Our outcomes going forward, our ability to get around and move around and do more. The more we do this, the sooner we get out of it and the more people that will live with us to be at that next Thanksgiving table, that next graduation. The DeWine administration took incoming fire from multiple sides on this, from Republicans and from protesters, from some medical experts and from Democrats at the State House. Ohio Representative Kristen Boggs. For the most part, I think Dr. Acton and the governor have been very thoughtful and considerate of the best measures and best policies that need to be intact before beginning to reopen the state. I've been very impressed with Dr. Atkins' leadership in this regard, but you know, to the extent that there are a few things that I think we can do uh, better that haven't been addressed, you know, first and foremost, you know, testing, testing, testing. And I know that everyone is aware of how critical 
being able to test and being able to contact trace is incredibly important to containing this virus. Um, we have not seen a really great layout for a plan for childcare. We cannot reopen the economy if people don't have safe and secure places to take their children so that they can go to work. Or even working from home is difficult for people when they are trying to manage being a homeschool teacher, uh, babysitting their toddlers, and working full time at their jobs from home. Is, is someone who has been trying to do that for the past several weeks with a one and a three year old, I can tell you it is, it is really difficult to give everything you need to all aspects of your demands when you don't have available childcare. So we need, it is absolutely critical that we address the childcare issue and making sure that parents have a safe place to send their children that they can afford and, and know that they are being well taken care of. Um, and also, we know that there is a, a tremendous disparate impact on our communities of color and our lower income communities. You know, we, we see that the hourly wage frontline uh, employees are the ones that are being most devastatingly uh, contracting this disease at a higher rate. And so we need a plan to address those disparate impacts on our communities of color and for those individuals, those employees that are being asked to put themselves in in, in line of this disease. After the governor's phase one about reopening was announced this past week, Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther and City Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts outlined how that reopening would proceed in the capital city. Genther praised DeWine's methodical approach. Efforts to reopen must be based on the best science available. It is not business as usual, but I support the governor's thoughtful measured approach to reopening the economy slowly and safely. We've expressed five areas of need to Governor DeWine before we contemplate reopening, and we've made great progress. We asked about greater flexibility and expanded access to testing. And just since our engagement, the number of tests statewide are going from 3,700 to 7,200 a day with plans to ramp up to 15,000 and ultimately 22,000 tests a day just in the next couple of weeks. We asked for increased testing supplies and kits. Just last week, a thousand kits were brought to Columbus Public Health for Dr. Roberts and her team to use with partners here in the community. I want to walk you through three things that Columbus Public Health will continue to do and will increase our efforts over the next few weeks as Ohio and Columbus reopens. First, we're gonna continue with our case and contact investigation. And as the governor described yesterday, that contact investigation is gonna be really critical for reopening Ohio. The second that we're going to continue to do is surveillance. We um, look at ER reports, EMS runs about respiratory disease activity in our community. We also look at the sale of over-the-counter medications about respiratory diseases or fever-like illness. And third, we will continue to conduct business inspections to ensure social distancing is followed. Um, that's gonna be critical moving forward as more businesses start to open in our community. 
the restaurant bar industry weighed in this past week about reopening. Restaurants in the short north are in State Representative Kristen Boggs' district. The one thing that I am consistently hearing from the restaurant uh, community is don't open us up and then shut us down again. Like if you're going to allow us to open, we need the security to know that we are going to be open for the long term because what is going to be devastating to our restaurants is if they have to order all the food and get back all the staff and then there's a shutdown, they lose all of that perishable food. They lose all of those goods that they um, have just acquired in order to start ramping back up. And so I think we need to be really careful with that industry in particular that is dependent on perishable food and dependent on supply chains that you can't just turn them on and off with a switch. You know, we need to make sure that if we are opening up restaurants, we're doing it in a way that they can stay open, they have stability and consistency, and that they know and can reasonably plan for the future. So let's tee up the next part of our conversation with that polling data from this week that I mentioned from Baldwin Wallace University. I talked to two frequent guests of our show, Tracy Winbush, former treasury for the state Republican Party, and Dale Butlin, chief of staff to the late U.S. Senator John Glenn. There is a grand canyon of difference between the marks Governor DeWine gets for his leadership compared to the president. 35 points. That's huge. Because we've not taught people government. We need to know the job of the president and the job of the governor. And unless you know the job of both of them, because they're not the same, and you measure them the same, then you will get different results. And we shouldn't do that because they're not the same job. Tracy Winbush, former treasury for the state Republican Party. Do you approve of the way President Trump is handling this? I think President Trump has handled this very, very well. Um, I will say this, communication skills and, and being uh, media savvy, I'm not going to say he's the best person in the world, because he's not. But overall, these moving parts under the situation and what had to happen with this country and getting the ventilators, getting the masks, the PPEs, getting the people, getting the states in a broken system and getting the money out to the people that needed it, I think he's done tremendously well. And I think we need to ease up on the personality and really get into the job of the matter. Dale Butlin, Chief of Staff to the late U.S. Senator John Glenn. I've been involved in politics in one way or another for four decades now. And if there's one thing I've learned is that crises do two things. They reveal leaders and they expose incompetence. Donald Trump, from the very beginning, has been a totally inept and incompetent president, from at first uh, calling it a hoax, and then after shutting down uh, air travel from China, wasting eight weeks downplaying the virus, saying it was going to go away like a miracle on its own, right up until the present time, when you have him peddling untested medical uh, treatments like uh, hydroxychloroquine, which we now find out leads to death in many people, to the ridiculous thing he just said the other day about how we all maybe ought to inject ourselves with disinfectant. Uh, I mean, I think it's reflected not just in the polls that you cited there, Scott, but in all the polls about the November race. What you see in every single poll from Fox News to the one just released this week by USA Today, Joe, Joe Biden now has a 10-point lead nationally, and even more importantly, he is ahead in every single swing state. What I'm saying is we need to know the job of that president and what they're supposed to be doing, which is to secure the borders and make sure that foreign enemies are not coming in, in which it did. 
because this was a foreign enemy and it has put America in a bad position. The question is, is America going to stand up and fight together to make America strong again in the future? Because wearing a mask outside is not America to me. This being locked in my house is not America to me. Not being able to go to a restaurant is not America. And if we are not careful, we're going to lose the America that we know playing politics. The problem is, is that Donald Trump has never taken responsibility. As a matter of fact, he has repeatedly said, I take no responsibility. Um, he has been a master at blaming everybody else. It's China's fault. It's the media's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's Obama's fault. It's everybody's fault but his. Look, I understand this is a major challenge, but when you look back at the major crises that this country has faced in the past, whether it was the Great Depression, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, the 9-11 the not, not, attack, what you saw in all of those cases is presidents giving it to the American people straight, telling them, being honest with them, like Governor DeWine has, uh, has done. All right, so now let's get back to that razor-thin lead for Joe Biden here in Ohio in that Baldwin-Wallace poll. Many people have said, nope, Ohio isn't a battleground anymore. We are trending pink, if not red. Three months ago, I did not think that Ohio was in play. I thought Ohio had become a pretty red state. But it's hard to deny every single poll that has come out showing this now razor thin. So I do think Ohio is in play, but even more importantly, <clears throat> Trump is now losing in all the swing states that made him president. He's behind in other places like Arizona. He's behind in Florida. He's behind in North Carolina. So Ohio, my judgment has always been that we probably don't carry Ohio. The Democrats probably don't carry, carry Ohio unless there is a national landslide. When I say landslide, I'm not talking about the popular vote because we're right. a fairly divided country. But I'm talking about the, the you know, electoral college. And I think that there is a, a very reasonable chance. Uh, I'm not going to predict that right now, but, I'm, I, but I will say there's a reasonable chance that this election, by the time we get to November, unless something dramatically changes between now and then. No president in modern times has been reelected with double-digit unemployment. We're not only going to have that, but we're going to have a national health catastrophe on top of that. So I think there's a realistic possibility that in the Electoral College, this race will not be close. November is a long way off because I never expected to be here today and voting yesterday. Things are going to have to change, but we're going to have to figure out whose platform do we want America's tomorrow to look like? The Democrat platform or the Republican platform? And again, because of the undereducation of the American electorate across the board, we are judging people on the wrong mechanisms of guidance. President Trump, again, in his eloquence of speech, he is not going to win the speech contest. But I will say this, the moving parts that we've had to deal with in this nation was overwhelming for anyone. And we're going to have to take this going forward because now we have an economy to start. When you go down 30, not gas is trading below a dollar. We understand that. I filled my tank up for less than $10. There's a problem here. Mm -hmm. And it's bigger than what we're looking at. I personally, 
President Trump is going to stand on the Republican platform that I hope is going to be a great platform to build this nation again. I do not believe in the liberal left policies for them to rebuild the nation. So we need to look past the personality and look at the platform because remember, our government is supposed to be balanced. It's not about one person. There is so much uncertainty heading now toward the presidential election. Will there be conventions? Will you still be able to vote in person? I asked Tracy Winbush and Dale Butlin for one prediction about November. Well, only fools make predictions of elections uh, six months out, but since you asked, I'll be willing to risk making a fool of myself. Um, look. Donald Trump is only president today because a perfect storm of events in three states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, allowed him to win those three states by a cumulative total of 77,000 votes. Uh, I believe that this crisis of leadership that he's had and the fact that he has so failed and has proved himself to be the most inept president in American history is going to cost him I think he will lose those three states and several others besides. So my prediction is, again, unless something dramatically changes between now and November, uh, I believe that Biden beats Trump. I think the Democrats retain control of the House. And I think there's at least now a 50-50 chance that we retake the Senate as well. Tracy, prediction. I believe if America wants to be one nation under God, they will go with Trump. And if they want to be a progressive, capitalist-leaning society, they will go with Biden. And it will be America's choice. I pray that we are smart enough to say we'll get it right the next time. And we'll end it there. Thank you for joining us today for Face the State. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. That's again Scott Light, courtesy of 10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Emily Allen, Senior Vice President of Programs for the AARP Foundation. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about your organization. What are you? So AARP Foundation is the charitable uh, affiliate of the AARP Enterprise, which most people are are familiar with. And we focus on uh, meeting the needs of creating solutions that help low-income older adults um, secure the essentials. So, and very much that includes helping them continue to generate a steady source of income through work. And we're going to talk about what's going on with seniors, uh, older workers in this economy, because it's been stunning for everybody. And, and obviously those who are nearing retirement or perhaps semi-retired, it, it's, uh, it's been a very difficult road. Well, it has, and, and I so appreciate you doing this segment. Um, you know, our thoughts go out to workers of all ages that have been impacted um, by layoffs and closures and reduced hours. But a recent AARP survey actually found that among workers 50 and older, 30% said that they had lost income due to workplace closures or reduced hours. And, you know, this crisis is really taking a heavy toll on older workers because, as you say, you know, some are, um, you know, thinking about retirement, but this is has really uh, set them back in many ways. It's kind of deja vu, too, from 10 years ago, only more sudden. No, that, that's so true. And unfortunately, I, I think we're going to see history repeating itself a bit um, because we know um, it, it actually takes older workers longer to return to the workforce, sometimes twice as long as their younger counterparts. So obviously, we're thinking ahead to that and how do we support older workers in returning to a workforce that, you know, we're not quite sure what they're going to face. 
So what is the word you're trying to get out to these folks? Well, I, I, I think a number of things. So, um, you know, one, we want to make sure that in, individuals have the information they need in order to, if they've been laid off or, or um, you know, furloughed in some ways, how do they access benefits? Um, you know, every state is a little bit different. But um, in Ohio, where I know you are, um, you know, individuals can uh, claim uh, unemployment through the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. We always like to point out the official agency for claiming unemployment because, as you might imagine, you know, um, there's uh, a lot of concerns about, you know, people trying to scam people that are experiencing uh, real challenges in their lives. So we always just like to, to say the specific agency. Um, you'll be need, you know, asked to provide some basic information, such as your address of your employer and the dates that you work. Um, and, and that's just a way to get into the unemployment benefit um, you know, system. Um, you know, we, we know that many states are uh, really unusually high call volumes and things like that, but um, really important for individuals to apply for those benefits. Um, the other thing that we're really trying to get out is that, in fact, fortunately, there is some economic stimulus. You may have heard of the CARES Act, um, and this provides an additional 13 weeks of unemployment benefits to help those who remain unemployed even after state unemployment benefits may run out, which is typically around 26 weeks. And because of the $600 federal add-on to that for, for the next few weeks, you know, that might actually put some of these folks who were working in retail and not back to work yet might actually put them in better shape financially than they were when they were working. Well, exactly. I mean, I think it's really important to tap into those benefits because there is such uncertainty about when, you know, the economy may open up in different places. Um, and depending on, you know, your particular industry, um, when you may be able to return to work. So you're absolutely right. That extra $600 um, can really come in handy to um, older adults, particularly, you know, when we're thinking 50 and older, um, you know, they, they still have families at home and, and things like that. So, um you know, it's, it's really nice to see um, the additional weeks happening. Talking with Emily Allen, Senior Vice President of Programs for AARP Foundation. What about folks who are, you know, 60 and older who are still working, too young to get Medicare, maybe looking at retiring at 62, or maybe thinking that they're going to end up drawing Social Security earlier than they plan to? It's a pretty scary time for them. Well, it really is. And, you know, that's that's always something that we like to caution people about. You know, really, you know, this is a short-term, you know, crisis. I know we're, we're in this crisis, but um, it's really important to, to think long-term when you, when you start thinking about taking Social Security benefits, um, what that can do. Um, you know, people are living longer, working longer, um, and so it's really important to think about Yes, that, that idea of taking Social Security early may seem tempting right now, but, you know, think about that, what that does to your benefit in the long run and how that may impact your life later. So, you know, if you can think about instead of um, taking Social Security earlier, how might you use this time to think about, you know, continuing to upskill and think about, you know, what jobs may be in demand that you'd like to take advantage of now or, you know, when, when um, people begin to return to work. Um, it's really important to kind of do that analysis and say, yeah, it sounds good to take my Social Security early, but what does that mean, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now on the benefit I'll receive? So I always just like to caution people about that. 
Because so many businesses are learning new ways to work from home and such, it absolutely actually might open up a whole lot of new opportunities for older workers. Well, we're hoping it does, actually. You know, we've really dug into the idea of what will be those jobs that um, will will kind of begin to work more remotely, and how do we prepare older workers for taking advantage of those types of jobs? Certainly, we've seen, you know, an uptick in the use of technology and being able to utilize technology platforms that we're all using as, as we all work from home, and how do we ensure that older workers have the skills and experience that they need in order to really take advantage of, of those remote work opportunities? Now, we know that won't work for everybody. Um, you know, certainly at ARP Foundation, you know, we focus a lot on individuals um, who are on the front lines. You know, as you mentioned, they're working retail or they're, you know, um, working a job that perhaps you can't work remotely. Um, but certainly uh, we see those remote work opportunities uh, potentially opening up. Do you have programs or information online about things like, uh, I don't know, job training or preparation and resumes or, or even what to do with a 401k and all that kind of stuff? We do, actually, and I, uh, what I would do is, is um, I just want to give one website, just go to aarpfoundation.org, and we have a number of programs, actually. One is called our Back to Work 50 Plus program, which provides uh, older job seekers with the tips and resources and connections that they need in order to think about, um, you know, upskilling and reskilling, perhaps, um, as they think about, you know, taking on new roles. You know, we're not quite sure what industry may be strong, um, strongest, you know, as, as things open back up. And so it gives people, um, we have a resource called the Seven Smart Strategies Guide, which really helps people think about how do I, how will I know what jobs are in demand in my community? And then how do I, how do I skill for those jobs? You know, we're all, you know, most of us are at home, we're, we're thinking about what we might be able to do. I always like to send the message that it's a great time to think about taking classes and things like that. One caveat is to make sure that when you're investing in those types of training opportunities, that it actually will have a return on that investment so that you're you're really putting your money and your energies into building the skills that will really be in demand by employers going forward. Talking with Emily Allen, Senior Vice President of Programs for AARP Foundation. Anything else you'd like to add? Oh, gosh. Well, we really just appreciate you doing this. And I think, um, you know, first and foremost, I'd like to send the message that um, the individual worker is their best resource. So it's so important to take care of themselves um, during this time. I know it's stressful, but take care of themselves because in the long run, that's going to do them the best good. Um, and then, you know, really think about, um, you know, networking. I know we're all kind of social distancing, but this is a real opportunity for people to network with friends and family and former co-workers and things like that. Um, this is the best time to do that. You can do that via LinkedIn or other types of platforms, email, things like that. Make sure that you continue to maintain those connections because that will really pay dividends going forward. Okay. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan.
Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.